This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In Miami Springs, Florida, last month, store manager Sammy Atari told us he noticed fewer customers purchasing those blue cans of beer. Well, it's selling, but it's selling away at a slow rate, so, uh, so eventually we're going to purchase less that we used to purchase, so just get off inventory. That was Brooke Schaefer reporting, and thank you so much for trusting us tonight. I'm Ballas with Leland Bitterts coming up next. I'm Elizabeth Vargas. See you again here tomorrow night. On the program tonight, East Palestine plea. President Biden won't visit the disaster area, so the victims came to Washington. We are calling on EPA with direction from President Biden to finally take action. Will this finally get them a presidential visit and presidential help? President intends to go, don't have a time or a date to preview at this time. Ties deep in. I think he had some things over some other people. Why did the head of a renowned private equity firm pay Jeffrey Epstein $150 million? How sexual assault accusations against Leon Black could finally reveal the truth about Epstein's sex trafficking. Lab leak deception. Our conclusions completely contradict their conclusions, too. New evidence shows federal health officials knew COVID came from a lab, but lied to us anyway. It's more likely that it came from a natural occurrence from the wet market. Where is the misinformation police? Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, and it's kind of odd to say this, but we have to, the summer of syphilis. And sadly, we are not kidding. And this goes way beyond new cases of the sexually transmitted disease. The FBA, FDA and CDC won't talk about how to stop it. And still worse, the drug needed to treat it is out of stock. The FDA can't figure that out either. And the drug to treat it treats an awful lot of other diseases. It is almost, but arguably much worse, of a repeat from last year's monkeypox debacle. Remember then, the FDA couldn't make enough vaccines and were reluctant to rein in pride festivals or urge gay men to limit partners. This year, though, the situation is worse, as is the apparent incompetence from the FDA and CDC. Lubbock is facing a spike in one particular sexual, sexually transmitted infection, and the drug to treat it is currently in short supply. New at 6, an alarming health trend impacting a lot of women across our area. Syphilis skyrocketing in Houston. Virginia is seeing a dramatic spike in syphilis, a surge in syphilis across Charlotte. An alarming increase in syphilis cases among newborns in Mississippi. Syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease. It is, shall we say, unpleasant for a number of reasons and can spread from a mother to her baby, causes all sorts of quite unpleasant 
conditions can spread to the brain, causing dementia and personality changes, of all things. It can be life-threatening as well. What's more, and this is important, we know how to prevent it. We all took health in eighth grade. It's not hard. Limiting sex partners and having protected sex. It's the same thing for monkeypox. But unlike monkeypox, the drug to treat syphilis treats a lot of other things. Now, thanks to the syphilis outbreak, people with meningitis, even strep throat, cannot get the drug they need. In other words, people getting syphilis from unprotected sex in the summer of 2023 love, it not only affects them, but it affects all of us. The CDC's very helpful call to action, let's work together to stem the tide of rising syphilis in the United States, barely talks about the easiest ways to get syphilis. Joining us now, Representative Greg Murphy. Dr. Murphy, also board-certified urological surgeon, as well as the co-chair of the House Republicans Dr. Caucus. Good to see you, sir. Good evening. Let's put it this way. Syphilis is unpleasant. We all know that. We don't need sure. to. We've, that's submitted and, and agreed upon. What I think is different here is that this is affecting a lot of people who are not, don't have syphilis. Right. You know, with the shortage of medication, it's led that this penicillin G, which is the most common drug used for syphilis, is now not available to treat strep throat, some of the other diseases that need to be treated. Kids are not able to be treated. But now that we have this huge epidemic, it's it's literally sucking away all the other penicillin. Look, like with monkeypox, it's pretty clear who the highest risk groups are for syphilis. Uh, And it's pretty easy to figure out how to prevent this. It's pretty easy to message on how to prevent this and to talk honestly about it. Why don't you think the FDA and CDC is doing it? For social concerns. They don't want to be seen as targeting a group. You know, back in the HIV era, it was uh, gay men that were that were primarily a target. But I think the CDC and this happened all during the pandemic became partly political. Um, in its nature rather than objective science. And they're afraid of, quote, hurting somebody's feelings and pointing out an at-risk population. All right. And, and therefore saying, hey, for this at-risk population, this is what you need to do Absolutely. Or, or, or not do. Uh, where, where does this go? I think about the drug shortages, Adderall, Tamiflu, Albertol, a baby formula, amoxicillin, children's Tylenol and Motrin. Now add, add penicillin here. Yeah. Uh, at some point, this turns into a real problem. It's a major problem, and some of this was highlighted during the uh, pandemic with supply chain shortages. Yeah. Other part have been quality issues, and the other part of bad regulation and laws by the government forcing our companies overseas. And so when only one company in, the, in this uh, uh, nation makes penicillin G, and there's been problems with quality, we're in a real hard spot. Are we f- being fair to blame the FDA and the CDC for not being stronger about this? No, I, I don't think it's fair. I think there's plenty of blame to go around. Okay. I think some of the regulatory environment, we've pushed our guys overseas. And plus, you know, this is a generic drug. You, you make pennies on the dollar. So there has to be some other type of incentive, some cl- other drugs that are done to be able to produce this at the same time. What takes this from being... An uncomfortable situation, which it seems like to be, to being a true crisis. Well, if you look at the true crisis, first, syphilis in its first symptoms is absolutely asymptomatic. You don't know it. And then you get a rash, and you may not know that either until it's in its tertiary form is the first time you see symptoms. But the real sad thing, Leland, is kids are now being born with congenital syphilis. And they're born with so many different congenital anomalies, some of which, you know, they're going to have to live with their entire life if, they, if they're not stillborn. So it's a real major, major problem. All right. But lar- larger, larger picture here from the cultural standpoint, are we at the point now where the FDA and CDC need to ring the alarm bells louder and hurt some feelings and be direct 
Absolutely. and how they talk about this? Absolutely. And there's a question of whether to call it a, declare it a public health emergency. Sadly enough, this became so political during the Biden administration, during the pandemic of calling things emergencies. There's so much refractoriness seen on the American public about the government calling it an emergency. It truly is a health crisis now, not only in the United States, down in Houston and some of the other places, but really worldwide. And it's time to call it what it is. And, and tell what our target populations, and by the way, it, it, dis, it affects more uh, minority populations than those in poorer environments um, than it does uh, the other populations at large. Sense. And so this is, you, you need to go where the disease is and work hardest to prevent it. And that's not happening. No, it's absolutely not. And it's not doing done because on the basis of politics. We don't want to center out one particular group or not. And that's not the way we've always conducted science. Yeah, no, and, t- and typically, as you point out, the, the poorest and the the least fortunate among us are the ones who get hurt the worst in situations of like access to medical care and everything else. It's sad. It really is. Good to see you, Dr. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. As always, we appreciate it. It's been 174 days since the East Palestine train derailment, and things continue to get worse for that community. They still haven't gotten their presidential visit. The residents are fed up. So today, the residents of East Palestine held a rally in Washington, D.C. to call for emergency aid and a ban on vinyl chloride, and also a ban on the transport of vinyl chloride. Jessica Conard, a East Palestine resident, was among them. She writes, President Biden, come to East Palestine and bring with you FEMA. We are literally still bleeding. Our bodies have suffered from nosebleeds, headaches, respiratory illnesses, intestinal irritability, eye irritation. Community members are now experiencing neurological symptoms, bleeding from parts of their body through enough for blood transfusions. While these people have been suffering, President Biden has prioritized a lot of other trips been all over the world. He just hasn't been to East Palestine. Jessica is with us now. All right, Jessica, uh, anything changed today with your visit to Washington? Well, first of all, thank you for having yeah, thank me. You. And yeah, we are certainly hopeful for change. We went uh, to Columbus a few weeks ago to request that Governor DeWine uh, submit a request for an emergency declaration, and he should be commended for doing that. Um, while it wasn't in a timely manner, we're, we're happy to have that. So now we're here, we're working on the Hill to try to get uh, Biden to sign that declaration so that we can get the resources that we need. All right. You th- the presidential visits, one thing, it sort of represents that the, the president's paying attention, the federal government's coming to pay attention. Uh, since East Palestine, he's been to Ukraine, Virginia Beach, Delaware, Colorado Springs, went to Philadelphia for the I-95 bridge collapse. California climate change announcement with Governor Newsom, Lithuania for the NATO summit. Finland has been back to Pennsylvania a number of other times. There's been a lot of, a lot of presidential trips. Why do you think, for a president who says he cares so much about the working class in America and so much about environmental issues, he doesn't come to a town that's the site of working class citizens dealing with one of the greatest environmental disasters in the past, what, 10 years? Yeah. You know what? I don't know. I, I don't make decisions for other people. I don't pretend like I know why Biden does or doesn't do what he's doing. But I do know that we need that emergency declaration. I do know that our homes, our businesses still smell like toxic chemicals. And that's not something that we can really do anything about without those resources. We desperately need indoor air home monitoring to make sure that our homes are safe, which we still don't have six, almost six months out. And we've been told uh, that while we have been exposed to these chemicals, um, there's really nothing that can be done from a medical standpoint except for wait and get treated for the cancers that are coming our way. So these are the resources that we need. Whether or not Biden comes, maybe he doesn't want to come because it's not safe in East Palestine. I guess we, we really don't know. But the, the testing has been inefficient. 
All right. You say that we need more testing, and the, we did some independent testing or got access to some dioxins, which is what causes cancer. 1,900 parts per trillion versus four parts per trillion uh, in, in normal situations. Total dioxins, 500,000 versus 1,800 in the control sample. It's sort of a stunning number, and there's no way to really trace it to anything but the spill and then the burnoff uh, of the rail cars afterwards. Let me put it in a larger sense. Is part of the problem here that if if we start really investigating this and seeing what's happening, that effectively you're either going to have to raise East Palestine and move everybody out or it's going to turn into something like a Chernobyl that no one can go into that town or have eat the crops or the livestock or anything else that comes from nearby farms? I would love to see my town become fully remediated. I think right now we have to remember that this is a grim warning for those that do live near a railroad track. This isn't something that we're just going to come back from and everything is going to be hunky-dory. This is something that we need to continue to pursue change in policy so this doesn't happen again. And I'm going to be here for it. This is this is why we're here. This is what we're doing. And, you know, hopefully we can continue to remediate. I think it's going to be a really long time. We really cannot continue to have these inconsistent um, lack of transparency answers. What we need is the truth. Right. Well, in, in, in a way, you guys kind of already know the truth, right? Because people are still getting sick. You're still seeing the chemicals in, in the water and in the streams and in the rivers. You kind of know what the truth is. We know that the streams are still highly contaminated. I think this is something that we can certainly all agree on. Um, the problem is, is that they say that it's safe. And you kind of want to turn your head because there are still people sick. So until things start matching up, it is going to be really challenging to understand what the truth really is. Yeah, I was telling, and I, I remember seeing these pictures, right, where they were telling everybody it's safe and we've done all these tests, and yet all of the people from the EPA and, and Norfolk Southern were all wearing hazmat suits and telling the residents, oh, no problem, just come back. So, hey, um, the, the people there are really lucky to have you, yeah. continue to, to fight for them and Thank be you. an articulate voice and, to, and for you to stay in East Palestine and really continue this. So um, we'll have you back to talk about it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. your time today. Yeah. For decades, nobody could figure out why so many people paid pedophile Jeffrey Epstein so much money to do so little. Take, for example, his pal Leon Black, a billionaire hedge fund executive, paid Epstein $158 million for financial advice. To be clear, that would be a little bit like Tiger Woods paying me for not one golf lesson, but lots of golf lessons. It would be quizzical. It would make absolutely no sense why Tiger Woods would pay anybody, much less me, for a golf lesson. All right, so now you combine the news of the payments from Leon Black to Epstein with the news of a lawsuit accusing Leon Black of raping a girl at Epstein's home in 2002, and suddenly the huge payments make a lot more sense. Epstein's former lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, long-held suspicions about the relationship between Epstein and his clients. Some people, I think, were attracted to him uh, because of his intellect, because of his charm. I think he had some things over some other people. I think he had some extortion over some people. I think some people may have uh, come to him not for his great set, uh, financial advice. I never thought he was that good uh, financially. I never took financial advice uh, from him. Um, and, and, and I suspect there were, there were people over whom he had something involving uh, the sex stuff. 
All right. Jen Smith is here, chief reporter for DailyMail.com, who has been following this and has put so many of these dots together. All right, Jen, uh, are we getting closer to this idea that there was compromise and extortion by Jeffrey Epstein of some of the people in his black book? Well, it's certainly seeming like the pieces of the puzzle are getting closer together, Leland. We're not all the way there yet, but look, this new lawsuit accusing Leon Black of a really horrific, brutal sexual assault. Some of the most incriminating allegations that we've actually seen in this whole Epstein ordeal, it really puts him in the frame for a lot more. Like you say, these payments, $158 million from a guy who was a titan of Wall Street. He was running Apollo, which was a private equity firm. It controls $400 billion. So his credentials were a lot more impressive than Jeffrey Epstein, who was, what, a failed math teacher? He didn't even graduate college. It never made sense. And now we're starting to see a much wider picture. Leon Black is really up to his elbows in Epstein problems, and I think it's going to only continue to get worse for him. All right, so Epstein and Leon Black timeline, 2012 to 2017, Leon Black provided professional services to Epstein. This is the, the money, the $152 million. Black and Jeffrey Epstein cut business ties because of a fee dispute. Leon Black steps down from Apollo Global Management 2023. Leon Black agrees to pay $62.5 million to the U.S. Virgin Islands to be released from potential claims related to territories investigation of Epstein's sex trafficking ring. This lawsuit, and I appreciate you saying really horrific acts because what happened... Uh, are alleged to have, ha- have happened to this 12-year-old girl uh, is, is sickening um, and not describe what happened. But nevertheless, this, this is all separate from what has already happened in the payouts Leon Black has already made. Yeah, absolutely. So we have three major components of the Leon Black Epstein thing. We have the $158 million that he gave apparently for tax advice. We have the U.S. Virgin Islands payment of $62 million. And look, the Virgin Islands were not even going after Leon Black. We got the subpoena today. It was filed back in 2021. They just asked him for photos of his trips to the Caribbean with Epstein and for documents about their communications. He was so desperate to not hand those over that he paid $62 million. Then the third component, arguably the worst, is this new lawsuit. And it's, by the way, the second lawsuit filed against Leon Black by a woman who claims she was raped by him in Jeffrey Epstein's house. All right. Uh, $62 million should not have to hand over photographs. Uh, must have been some photographs. Uh, are there, is there a chance that there's going to be a criminal investigation into this, number one? But number two, Leon Black wasn't Jeffrey Epstein's only client. There were other people, you know, there's other names in the little black book, so to speak. And there's other people that paid Jeffrey Epstein, we think, a lot of money. Uh, hence how he funded his lifestyle other than Leon Black. Where are we in any of those dots? Well, listen, we all know that the Justice Department are super quiet about what they're doing, what they're not doing when it comes to Jeffrey Epstein, maybe because they dropped the ball for so many years. But um, I happen to know that the attorney representing the girl who filed this most recent one, she is in touch with the Justice Department and she has named names. There are not that many other names in the lawsuit, but they are certainly out there and the investigators know them. So whether or not they're acting on them, we'll have to follow up on that. But in terms of the other people, this black book, this was always the issue with Jeffrey 
Jeffrey Epstein, right? He killed himself back in 2019. Ghislaine went behind bars. She clearly wasn't the only person involved here. And it's finally looking like some people are starting to be held accountable or the accusations are at least coming out. I think it's fair to say that someone has to pay for all this harm that was done to so many young girls over such a long time. And these men and women are, you know, really in the upper echelons of society, of Wall Street, of politics, arguably, we don't know yet. But they hid in plain sight for a long time. It doesn't look like they can hide for much longer. Yeah, I don't think really anybody could hide from you, frankly. <laughs> I, would, I, would not, I would not want Jen Smith working on a story about me. Um, we got to run, but thank you. And uh, let us know when you got more on this, because this is one of those stories you just have to keep pulling on the thread. And it's amazing what comes out. We appreciate it. Sure will. Yeah, thank you. Hunter Biden's legal troubles aren't over. Well, that may not be the biggest issue. The political headaches are just starting for the White House, the new predicament for the president. From a presidential perspective, is there any possibility that the president would end up pardoning his son? Plus, miracle weight loss drug or torture device, vomiting, nausea, early stomach paralysis. Hmm, what a new lawsuit says about Ozempic, and maybe people shouldn't be surprised. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Presidential perspective, is there any possibility that the president would end up pardoning his son? No. Well, is there a, is there I, I just said no. All right. Very direct. But I think reasonable people can agree. Someone coming up may disagree with me, but anytime reporters can legitimately ask if the president will pardon his son, it's a bad day for the White House. Doesn't matter what party the president is. Last March, the White House called that a hypothetical question and refused to answer. Today, they had to answer because, as we told you last night, federal criminal investigations are much like boulders pushed off a mountain. They can crush and destroy anything on their way down. Friends, business associates, family members, you really don't know. And it has certainly done a number on President Biden's events today. See you all. Thank you With us now, Democratic strategist Kurt Bardella, political consultant Sir Michael Singleton. Gentlemen, good to see you. All right, so Kurt, you're, you, this not a problem for Democrats. No, it's not a problem for anybody. I mean, listen, the last guy, if I recalled, pardoned Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, Steve Bannon. I don't remember Republicans giving a crap about pardons back then, so I don't think this is a political issue at all. And oh, by the way, this president's not going to be pardoning his own son. That's off the table. This is only a hypothetical question coming from the media for some reason. I don't know why. No one has ever suggested that he would pardon anybody in this situation. Right now, the lead Republican for president is saying he's going to pardon January 6th insurrectionists. Oh, 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 I mean, on. come but, on. But, but no, but Kurt, 
this completely defangs the White House from being able to make cases about Donald Trump that saying, hey, vote for Joe Biden because Joe Biden is Mr. Clean and Donald Trump is a criminal. Right. Okay. That's still true. They can't say that anymore. Sure they can. Oh. He's not pardoning. If he pardoned his son, I would agree. That would take that away. But he's not going to pardon his son. So he's not doing the criminal corrupt thing and he's not abusing his power. Let's be honest here. If if Donald Trump was asked if he were to pardon one of his children, he would say Democrats, CNN, MSNBC, networks that you and I have both been on would have a field day with this. Because he would do it. Because he would do it. That's why we would have a field day with it. Number two. The president has stated his son did nothing wrong. He wasn't a part of all these various conversations. We're now finding out, Leland, that that probably isn't true. And so this idea of Joe Biden being Mr. Clean, above the law, doing everything correct, his children are great, his family is great. I don't know how true that I'm is. I'm shocked here. that Joe Biden didn't throw his son under the bus. Boy, that's, that's really surprising. I'm not saying I'm surprised. What a, what a rotten father. I mean, any father would stand up for their son. I I'm not negating that. that. I think, I think the last but, guy but, would but, throw his son under the bus. What Democrats have painted Joe Biden and his family as this perfect picture president. And that is not true. And I think that does matter. I think that they paint him as a person that has actual integrity, has real family values. I'm like integrity the last while guy. Integrity like the last while guy. While his son is calling so, him while trying to listen, make a deal? Listen. That's integrity? I think integrity oh, is standing on. by your family. Standing by, like, oh, aren't you guys on, always talking about family values and stand by your family? Wait a second. This is a real issue, though. When, when you stand up in front of the American people, okay, mm-hmm. and you say on a debate stage, in a presidential debate stage, my my son didn't get any money from China. It turns out he did. He lied. Okay, when you say th- that's different than standing up for your son, and to be fair, the White House now has had to walk back so many of the things President Biden said about Hunter Biden's business dealings. And we'll, we'll go through what Joe Biden said and how the White House has now changed. Take a listen. Can you say specifically that the president did not have discussions of any kind with Hunter about his business dealings? As you mentioned, I was asked this question multiple times on Monday. Nothing has changed. So you said that nothing has changed when you were asked about the president's previous remarks on his son's business dealings. But the language has, in fact, changed. Could ask me a million different ways uh, on this question. Nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah, right. Nothing has changed. Well, but no, but Kurt, Kurt, something has changed. It went from Joe Biden saying, I never discussed my son's foreign business dealings to he said now the White House has to say he was never in business with his son. That's a big difference. I think we're talking a distinction without a difference, actually, here. I mean, and I think about the there's been this litany of investigations led by Congress and and obviously Mm -hmm. Justice Department about Hunter Biden. And with all the investigations, all the hearings, all the pronouncements that we've heard from Republicans in Congress particularly, there has not yet been one no, single been no shred of, of evidence that has shown that President Biden was involved in his son's business deals. That's just a fact right now. But what it does show, Kurt, and, and there's a lot of data, focus group information that a lot of Americans, especially swing voters, don't like children of powerful people benefiting from their parents' sure, positions. Sure. The American people do not like that. Right. And maybe we can't right. find evidence yet, but what we do know is clear. Hunter Biden but you know absolutely what's, benefited but, but you from know what's interesting? vice president, and he's probably still uh, benefiting I, I hear, from I hear that. President. I hear that. What's interesting to me, though, is that there is a Republican congressman who was just asked yesterday, do you talk about Hunter Biden in your district? He said, nope, I sure don't. No one is talking about this in their districts. No Republican is talking about this in their districts. The only place where this conversation happens, really, is in Washington. Voters at home don't give so a crap Kurt, about so Hunter Biden. But does it not matter? We talked about integrity. Does it not matter? What, what a private citizen does? No, I don't give so a crap. So it doesn't matter if the president's crap. son is leveraging his father's position for business? 
Uh, we're talking about integrity uh, 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 here. Yeah, we are. And I think that when we're talking about someone who was a private citizen, didn't work in the West Wing, didn't work in the West Wing, didn't trade government favors for anything, there's no proof that the president so he didn't, they didn't, he didn't. There's no proof that the, there's no president, I'm just gonna, I'm just the president knew anything. You can't compare that to Jared and Ivanka, who worked in the White House, worked in the West Wing, got billion dollars of salary when they left them. And they're still getting I don't remember getting charged. Where's the FBI investigation? Where's the FBI investigation Jared and Ivanka? I don't have a bell to ring, okay? <laughs> Gentlemen, good to see you both. Thank you. Republicans, he says, they're going to take it out to the green room. Republicans love the Hunter Biden news, but it might prove more relevant for the California governor's presidential ambitions. Welcome to Newsom Watch, our ongoing look at the California governor's growing national profile. Kurt Bardella likes that graphic. Can we get a shot of Kirk Fardella? <laughs> new so much. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. All right. He continues to run for president without really running. Today, for example, he offered to help with negotiations between the Screen Actors Guild, Hollywood writers, and the producers. They turned him down. But he got a headline out of it. Johanna Masca joins us from California, CEO of the Global Situation Room, which served as President Obama's White House Director of Press Advance, News Nation political contributor. All right. Come on. We, we all know Gavin Newsom just waiting for the phone to ring, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. he's going to get in the race January 2025. I can already tell you. We know that. We know that. But, I mean, it, it, there's no question. Okay, look. Hollywood strike negotiator. America's gun safeties are self-appointed, and he's now sort of taking the fight on to Ron DeSantis. National primetime spokesman run a national TV blitz and included a June sit-down with... None other than Sean Hannity, GOP agitator, mm -hmm. public spats with Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, threatening to file criminal charges against DeSantis, on and on and on. This is a guy. Look, I mean, he, no, is he is he going to challenge Joe Biden in a primary? Probably not. But it's hard to imagine this isn't somebody who's sort of waiting and watching and wants to be available on deck if sometime in the next year yeah. uh, Joe Biden isn't running. Well, and you know, one problem he doesn't have, Leland, is his children uh, don't work. They're going to school. They're very young. So uh, certainly he, you know, has that going for him. Thankfully, he did not have children with his ex-wife, Kimberly Guilfoyle, who is getting married to Donald Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr. So, you know, it's an interesting thing. But, no, Gavin Newsom absolutely has ambitions. Look, the strike is actually something that I'm surprised there's not more oxygen about what's going on. The writers were the first to strike, and they're striking over artificial intelligence taking their jobs, over the uh, residuals, things that technology has really changed how they're getting paid. And they've been striking for a very long time, and people haven't been talking about it. It's actually, it's going to affect California's economy. And Gavin knows he's already got a deficit. We had, you know, an increase in uh, school spending, an increase in a lot of the spending that liberals have wanted to see for a long time under uh, this governor. And, and now, if he doesn't have the income coming in because the studios are shut down and because tech is, you know, affected and all of these industries that, that really bolster mm -hmm. California's economy are affected, we're going to have even bigger problems. And he's not going to have the platform he needs for January 2025. Of course, if there was any way that he could possibly get in earlier, I think he's an ambitious man and I would expect him to get in. Yeah, well, he, he's, he's sort of like, what, Dennis Rodman, ready on deck, as Pitbull would sing. 
<laughs> um, just just, yeah. just in case. All right. We got to run. Uh, the next edition of Newsom Watch coming as news warrants. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Oh, come on. You like the graphic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Over the last few years, if you said COVID came from a lab, you were censored and called racist. Today we're learning, well, likely came from a lab. Where are the misinformation police? Turns out the very same people who clutched their pearls regarding misinformation spread a lot of misinformation themselves specifically about where COVID came from. Yeah, we, we of course all know it came from a lab. It's painfully obvious. But up until recently, speaking that very obvious fact that COVID, this new coronavirus that originated in Wuhan, came from a lab in Wuhan that studied and made coronaviruses more deadly, just stating that fact got you branded a racist and banned on social media for misinformation. Turns out the real misinformation wasn't that it came from a lab. The real misinformation was the wet market theory that absolved the Chinese of responsibility. From Wall Street Journal op-ed, the COVID lab leak deception. Scientists who signed a paper claiming a natural origin turned out not to have believed it themselves. They were spreading misinformation. The mainstream media frequently cited the paper in ridiculing any discussion of a lab leak as a conspiracy theory favored by racists and far-right-wing extremists. Facebook censored the topic for a year. Jamie Metzl is considered by many as the original COVID whistleblower, founder and chair of One Shared World, and joins us now. All right. We can all sort of think about this in two ways. It's one thing to to believe, you know, that there's different questions and different scientific theories. It's another thing to know it's wrong and spread a different theory because it's politically expedient. What I would ask you is somebody who was on the other side of that and who was shamed and belittled, because of what you said that turned out to be true, how does it feel that the truth's coming out? Well, obviously it's vindicating, but it's just unfortunate that it's three and a half years later. Our country and our world have been denied the kind of robust conversation about pandemic origins that's been required. The entire process has been distorted. Uh, The Chinese government hasn't been held accountable uh, and the very scientists who were falsely stating a certainty, I, I think these scientists still believe, uh, they believe it probably came from uh, through either through a wet market or, or from nature. Uh, but they didn't say that. They didn't say, we don't know, but we think it probably comes from nature. They said, we absolutely know. We know it comes from nature. And anyone uh, saying that it possibly may come from a lab is a conspiracy theorist. And as somebody who's been making this case for uh, more than three and a half years, obviously it's positive. But this is just the first step, because now that we're starting to have a conversation, a real conversation about pandemic origins, we need to ask the tough questions of the Chinese government, uh, which is responsible for one of the greatest cover-ups in history. A million dead Americans, a couple of trillion dollars, if not more, of losses to the American economy, on and on and on. Uh, Why would people who are scientists, whose job it is to seek truth, say things that they knew to be untrue 
So it, it wasn't just because yeah. they felt it. I mean, I, right. I can't. I'm trying to get to the motive here. Sure, it's it's a very important question. There are some people who are saying it's it was a, a systematic conspiracy coordinated by Dr. Fauci. I absolutely don't think that's the case. What I do think is that in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of people were afraid. There was a whole generation of scientists who had basically invested their careers in the idea that there were going to be more pandemics. Uh, and that one of the most important ways of preventing those was to foster scientific collaborations across borders. So it was very difficult for those people in the early days. And, and certainly I'm, I'm a, a progressive liberal Democrat. And when I started raising this issue, people would say, hey, you're supporting a conservative Republican narrative. So there were scientists who thought, well, we don't want to feed this anti-science agenda and we don't know the answer. And I think they just shaded their conclusions from we don't know. And according to them, we think it probably comes from nature to we absolutely do know. And then the media had shifted in those in those Trump days from what I call he said, she said journalism, which is somebody said X and another person said Y. Huh? And we had the President Trump, who was a pathological liar. And so the media got in the habit uh, of saying, well, here's what Trump said and here's why it's not true. And most of the time, that was a great way to do journalism. But once in a while, maybe even accidentally, uh, Trump said something that was accurate. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that raising these basically common sense, logical questions that you raised in your intro about origins um, should have been something that we, we explored in a serious way uh, but instead, uh, that entire process was, uh, was shortchanged, and now we need to shift that. I, I appreciate you being willing to give people at least a little bit of benefit of the doubt. I'm, I, as a journalist, I have to be more skeptical. I, my rule is always just follow the money yeah. and where, sort of where people's bread is buttered. And for Anthony Fauci, there was a lot of money at stake. Uh, in terms of what was being sent over to the Chinese. You talk about this global collaboration, right? The U.S. was funding so much research in, in China. We asked him about that, and he was awfully defensive. Uh, I think the one time he's allowed, allowed us to interview him here on the program. Take a listen. The Wuhan lab is a very large lab to the tune of hundreds of millions, if not billion dollars. Right. Take that. The grant that we're talking about was $600,000 over five years for an average of about $125,000 to $140,000 a year. So now you're making extrapolation that we sent in. Uh, no, sir, I'm not, I'm not making no, any extrapolation. No, no, sir, no, sir, I'm not making any extrapolation. I'm simply saying the fact of the matter is, is that so much of what was we were told as Americans about what we knew from the right. Chinese was based simply on taking their word. Right. All right. Yeah. So Dr. Fauci is right. The, the U.S. funding to the Wuhan Institute of Virology was relative peanuts. They didn't need our, yeah. our money. Uh, this is a story about Chinese malfeasance, but we need to look at everything. We certainly need to look at ourselves. And the fact of the matter is that the United States government, even in these very small amounts, uh, was funding a laboratory where we didn't know what viruses were being held, what work was being done, or who was doing that work. And so we need to look at everything. We need to look at ourselves. Uh, but the real crime here, and I use the word crime deliberately, is the Chinese government, which since the, even after the initial spillover, the initial outbreak, 
uh, has destroyed samples, hidden records, imprisoned Chinese journalists, enforced a gag order preventing Chinese scientists from speaking publicly about pandemic origins, and blocked any meaningful investigation into pandemic origins. It's not just a crime. It is dangerous because it's putting us and future generations at great risk. Yeah, no, it's been something we've been talking about for a long time. My congratulations to you for vindication. Um, Sometimes that's the best justice you can get. Uh, We'll have you back. We appreciate it. I look forward to it. All right. Some serious new health concerns about that popular weight loss drug, Ozempic. A woman lost 150 pounds, and she says it wasn't worth it. But she's not suing. Why is that? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, it's true there really isn't a magic pill for weight loss, and it turns out the magic injection called Ozempic might do more harm than good for some people. It seems like everyday dieters are coming forward now to complain about side effects, pancreatitis, low blood sugar, nausea, the list goes on. Chris is here and is working on a story about this tonight who says she is suffering from some serious side effects. Look, I guess, uh, you know, they, they say this drug isn't for weight loss. It's supposed to be for people who have diabetes. So is it not sort of you buyer beware here? Uh, It is, and I don't want to be too alarmist about it, but there should be concern for two reasons. One, when you're using something, as you suggest, off-label, right? This is a diabetes drug. Uh, It hasn't been studied in terms of what it does for people without diabetes or even with diabetes who stay on it, um, you know, beyond uh, the assumed protocol uh, for diabetics or for non-diabetics. So the unknown matters. And you're starting to collect data. And for someone of my generation, we remember Fenfen back in the 90s, a combination drug uh, that people started taking for weight loss. And it wound up causing all kinds of pulmonary cardiac things that had to be pulled off the market, something like 13 billion in settlements because of it. You know, sometimes there is something too, too good to be true. All right, so let me ask you this. Why is it important for us, you think, to, to, to cover this? Because a lot of people are taking it, and yeah. they believe it's going to be fine, and they believe that any of the concerns are fine, and it's growing, um, and millions of people are interested in it, and it's now being put in pill form, which means you're going to have a lot more people take it. You know, taking an injection well, there, yeah, on a regular th- you think basis about the money. Think is, about the money. Uh, is a big Did- ask. Yeah, think about the money the federal government's going to be spending on this. All of us, if it's covered by Medicare, Medicaid, on and on and on. Let me ask you this. I thought this was interesting because I was confused by it. This woman says she suffered all of these terrible, terrible effects, right? That, you know, her stomach Mm -hmm. is paralyzed. She lost all this weight, but she'd never do it again, on and on and on. Yet, she's not suing. And in a society as litigious as ours, why isn't she? Well, she's not suing yet, Right. Um, first of all, second, mm. she was prescribed this for diabetes. Um, so she's in a little bit of a different category 
uh, than someone who was given it off-label just for weight loss. And the question becomes, uh, if there were negligence or if there was um, Mr. Malfeasance, right? You need malfeasance. Somebody doing something bad on purpose here, like they should have known. Well, who would that be? Would it be her provider? Uh, Would it be the company? So, uh, yes, anyone can sue, but not any lawsuits going to win. Yeah, it's a good point. All right, so she's coming up on the show tonight. We'll be watching. Thank you very much. See you in about yeah, six Yeah, I mean, look, our biggest concern minutes. is, like, you do this all the time, Leland, and it's the same thing for me. I just want people to be careful. That's all. I don't want you to yeah. think uh, that it's, you know, something for nothing. Um, losing no, it's a, it's weight. a good point. We, yeah. We all no, know. A, you got to do point. it the hard way. You got to do it the hard way. You got to <laughs> eat less, move more. That's how you get to head look to, like head you. to the gym. <laughs> I got to go to the gym a lot more to look like you. We'll see you in about six minutes, Chris. Uh, When we come back, a prayer breakfast unlike any other you have ever seen, been to, or especially heard something like this at. See you in a minute. There's a lot of boring events in Washington. Any honest person will tell you prayer breakfasts Top the list, the exception being a breakfast hosted this morning by presidential candidate Tim Scott. Representative Nancy Mace told everyone exactly what she gave up to be there with them. When I woke up this morning at 7, I I was getting picked up at 7.45. Patrick, my fiancé, tried to pull me by my waist over this morning in bed, and I was like, no, baby, we don't got time for that this morning. Uh, i got to get to the prayer breakfast, and i got to be on time, and a little TMI. But um, he can wait. He's got, we got, I'll see him later tonight. (laughs) As I said, not a boring prayer breakfast. She later tweeted, I go to church because I am a sinner, not a saint, adding that she plans to have an extra long talk on Sunday with her pastor. It's very difficult at this time to top anything Nancy May said, so we'll leave it there. Chris Cuomo picks it up from here. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We're live. So let's get after it. And we have breaking news. Former President Trump just got hit with new charges.